Welcome everyone to episode one of the Curse Land podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's get started. The Cody Road Bridge in northern Kentucky is a railroad bridge that runs over Cody Road, right at the point where a creek runs under the road. So you have the bridge running above you, and the road dips somewhat below it. With the creek and low road, this area is prone to flooding when the creek rises. From the website CreepyCincinnati.com A story by Rick The Cody Road Bridge Flooding here is such a common occurrence, swinging gates have been permanently placed on either side of the creek, marked with stop signs to be closed whenever the waters start to rise. The legends of this area revolve around a woman that was killed in one of the following fashions, depending on who you ask. 1. Committing suicide by either jumping in front of an oncoming train on the bridge, or by jumping from the bridge. 2. Running for help from a burning home that was near the bridge, but getting hit by a train in the process. 3. By getting caught in the current when the road quickly flooded below the bridge, either while in her car or while walking. Reports from this area are often of a woman in white walking the bridge, sometimes crying, others say yelling for help. Orbs, phantom trains, and disembodied voices are also reported here. Some locals refer to the phantom as Pigface, supposedly referring to her injuries after going head-to-head with the train. While researching this urban legend, I did come across the following story. This is an excerpt from Linda Lynn's Kentucky Home and Ghost Stories. Just an update to your post that the Cody Road crossing is haunted. It's true that the railroad bridge and the road bridge are often flooded, and I believe someone did in fact die once due to that. However, almost all stories of hauntings of these railroad tracks are false. During the Prohibition, moonshiners would park on the road and cross the hills to the railroad tracks and make their product. The ghost stories were created to keep people away during their activities. I've lived the first 20 years of my life in a house next to these tracks. Cody Road was only a 20-minute walk down the tracks for me, so I was always interested in the subject. The most popular ghost involves a lady who died in a house fire and roams the tracks screaming for help and alerting people to the fire. In actuality, the woman in question never died in the fire, only the family pet, actually. Apparently, two moonshiners had a fallen out and one of them set fire to the other's house. The woman who everyone believes haunts the tracks lived a long life until she died peacefully in the late 1980s of old age. I'm not trying to debunk ghost sightings or activities. Hell, I live within 10 minutes of Bobby Mackey's in Wilder, Kentucky. But having been a resident of Independence most of my life, I like to set the record straight whenever possible on the Cody Road hauntings. Quentin Baker Be careful out there when checking out Cody Road. It's pitch black at night and not much room to park. Make sure you ask for pig face. Wall 
Dallas Circus wasn't the largest show in the country, but it came close. By 1918, the company employed around 250 performers, from acrobats to equestrians, clowns to lion tamers. Formed in 1907, when circus owner Benjamin Wallace purchased the Carl Hagenbach Circus, the outfit had since grown to be a $1 million extravaganza that required two separate trains of 28 cars each to transport all the performers, animals, costumes, and gear across the country. From the website smithsonianmag.com, a story by Lorraine Boisenau. The Hammond train wreck of 1918 killed scores of circus performers. In fact, it was trains that made such an enterprise possible. The enormous growth of railroads in the post-Civil War era fueled the golden age of circuses, writes historian Douglas Wissing. Instead of plodding through the mud at 10 miles a day from small town to small town, circuses hitched their rail cars to trains and clattered to cities hundreds of miles apart overnight. By the turn of the 20th century, nearly a hundred circuses roamed the United States, more than a third of them traveling by rail. Circuses were an unmatched spectacle, bringing together a nation rapidly filling with new immigrants from different cultures and backgrounds. As cultural historian Rodney Huey writes, the day the circus came to town was a holiday, disrupting the daily lives of its citizens, often to the point that stores closed, factories shut down, and school classes were dismissed. As for the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus, it was the nation's third largest circus and considered the Midwestern version of the East Coast P.T. Barnum Show. When the Hagenbeck Wallace Show came to town, visitors could expect some of the most superbly trained animals renowned trapeze artists, and breathtaking equestrian routines. Of course, traveling by train came with its own risks. Railroad accidents of the era were common and deadly. In 1892, when the circus was simply the Great Wallace Show, a railroad wreck resulted in 26 trained horses being killed. A second in 1903 occurred when the second train didn't slow down on its approach into the yard, and slammed into the train ahead of it, killing 26 men and several animals, writes Richard Little in The Great Circus Train Wreck of 1918. But neither of those earlier accidents compared to the scale of the disaster of the Hagenbach-Wallace team on June 22, 1918. The circus had just completed two performances in Michigan City, Indiana, and was traveling overnight the 45 miles to nearby Hammond. The first train, carrying workers and many of the circus animals, cruised on to its destination with no problems. But engineers on the second train halted their progress to fix a hot box. The overheated axle bearing could cause a fire on the train if not dealt with immediately. It was around 4 a.m. when the second train pulled off onto a side track, but the last five cars, including four wooden sleeper cars, remained on the main track. As the engineers worked and the performers slept, an empty train used to transport soldiers to the East Coast for subsequent deployment to the war front in Europe came barreling down the main track. The driver blew past several stop signals and then the lamps of several of the circus engineers trying desperately to stop the oncoming train. But the train's steel frame Pullman cars smashed into the wooden circus coaches at speeds between 25 and 60 miles per hour, according to contemporaneous newspaper reports. 
The sound of the collision was so loud that nearby farmers awoke and hurried to see what had happened. Henry Miller, the assistant light manager, was among the survivors thrown from the wreckage with minor injuries. I was in the last coach next to the caboose and was asleep when we were hit, he told the Chicago Daily Tribune a day after the accident. I woke to the sound of splintering wood, then there was another crash, and another, and another. The train buckled on itself. It parted in the center as clean as though it had been sliced with a giant knife. How many people were killed or injured from the collision is impossible to say. In the moments after the impact, the kerosene lamps that hung in the hallways of the wooden cars quickly set everything aflame. Survivors clawed their way out of the debris or called for help before the fire engulfed them. Acrobat Eugene Enos, trapped beneath some wooden beams, received aid from his wife, Mary, and Lon Moore, a clown. We pulled him clear just as the flames licked at him, Mary later told the Chicago Daily Tribune. But most weren't so lucky. The fire spread so quickly that crash survivors risked their own lives to pull friends and family out of the wreckage. Although the Gary and Hammond fire departments arrived as quickly as possible, the only source of water were nearby shallow marshes. A wrecking crane was also brought to the accident site to dig people out, but couldn't initially be used because the heat from the fire was too intense. The Daily Gate City and Constitution Democrat, an Iowa newspaper, wrote later that day, The task of identifying the dead and seriously injured was almost hopeless. Not only were many of the bodies burned so badly that recognition was impossible, but practically everyone on the train was killed or hurt. More than a hundred people were injured in the accident, and 86 were killed, including some of the circus's famed performers. Animal trainer Millie Jewell, dubbed the Girl Without Fear, Jenny Ward Todd, an aerialist and member of the Flying Wards, bareback rider Luis Cottrell and Wild West rider Verna Connor, Strongman brothers Arthur and Joseph Derricks, and the wife and two young sons of Chief Clown Joseph Coyle. In the aftermath of the accident, the families of the deceased performers struggled with who to blame. The railway company? The engineer driving the empty train, a man named Alonzo Sargent, who was arrested and charged with manslaughter? The circus company itself? All of them seemed to shirk any blame. One spokesperson for the Interstate Commerce Commission even released a statement to the Chicago Daily Tribune saying, We do everything we can to discourage the use of wooden cars on passenger trains and urge the substitution of steel ones. That is all we can do. As for the survivors, they decided the show must go on. Despite the tremendous physical and psychological toll of the accident, the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus only missed two performances, thanks to other circuses providing equipment and crew. In the following weeks, 53 of the deceased performers were offered a burial in a large plot at Woodlawn Cemetery in Chicago, which had just been purchased by the Showman's League, a fraternal order created in 1913 to support men and women in show business. Only five victims had marked graves. The rest were burned too badly to be identified. When the coffins arrived, more than 1,500 mourners gathered to pay their respects. The graves were memorialized with a stone elephant, its trunk drooping in sadness. In a way, tragedies like this could be said to fit with the popular view of the circus as a dangerous and slapdash workplace, populated by shady transients and naturally prone to disaster, writes Stuart Onan in The Circus Fire, A True Story of an American Tragedy. 
but most risks are painstakingly calculated by expert professionals, as are the rigid logistics behind the daily world of the circus. The problem was when the risk couldn't be calculated, when it arrived unanticipated in the dead of the night. A rabbit bobcat recently attacked a Hart County grandmother in her yard, spurring a furious battle that ended with the cat's strangulation death. From OnlineAthens.com, a story by Wayne Ford, Hart County grandmother kills rabid bobcat with bare hands. I thought, not today. There was no way I was going to die, Dee Dee Phillips said Thursday as she recalled the attack that occurred June 7th at her home off Liberty Church Road. Phillips has begun a round of rabies shots at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. She also has a broken finger and numerous bite and claw wounds to her hands, arms, chest, and legs. I'm very lucky, the 46-year-old woman said. The unprovoked attack occurred about 6 p.m. She had been working on her truck that afternoon and posted a bumper sticker that read, Women who behave rarely make history. She planned to photograph the sticker and send it to her husband. She walked out of the house with her cell phone. My neighbor's dog was barking and it drew my attention, she said. I saw the cat and I took a picture. The cat took two steps and was on top of me. It came from my face. Phillips grew up in the country where her father-in-law was once a trapper of bobcats. As a result, she knew something about the animal's behavior. They go for your jugular because when they can get the vein, you're dead in a couple minutes, she said. This bobcat did go for her upper body. It caught me slightly on my face, but I got him before he could do much damage there, she said. I took it straight to the ground and started inching my hands up to its throat. I knew that was the only way I was getting out of this. With both hands around the bobcat's neck, she began squeezing, but she never shouted for help because her five-year-old granddaughter was in the house. I was scared if I screamed for help that my granddaughter would come out and I didn't want that to happen, she said. Once I got him where he wasn't moving, I started screaming for my daughter-in-law to call 911, she said. Philip's son was also called after the 911 call and he showed up with a gun. But Phillips would not release her grip on the crazed animal as she feared it might not truly be dead. She didn't want her son to fire the gun because she was so close, so he pulled a knife. My son stabbed it four or five times, but it never budged, so I knew it was completely dead, she said. After Hart County deputies and an ambulance arrived, Phillips drove herself to a hospital. She learned the next day the bobcat was rabid. Phillips lives in a rural area near the Elbert County line and said she learned only recently a rabid skunk and rabid fox were found in the same area. Phillips' cousin, Amy Leanne Mize, has set up an account in Fundly.com to raise money for Phillips' medical expenses as the first round of rabies shots have already cost her $10,000. She also faces expenses for treatments to her wounds.
The legend of Lavinia Fisher will vary from teller to teller, but the gist of the story, told for the last 120 years, goes something like this. John and Lavinia Fisher owned an inn, the Six Mile House, on a lonely road outside of Charleston, South Carolina. The building was well maintained and was a welcome sight to weary travelers, but it was rumored that sometimes guests checked in and did not check out. One night, a fur trader named John Peoples stopped at the inn and was warmly greeted by the Fishers. The beautiful Lavinia Fisher was especially friendly. Peoples thought the Fishers were being a little too friendly, and suspicious of their intentions, he went to bed early. From the website murderbygaslight.com A story by Robert Wilhelm The Legend of Lavinia Fisher People's suspicions grew, and he could not sleep. He decided not to lie in the bed, but to sit in the corner facing the door so he could see if anyone came in to attack him. His suspicions were confirmed when a trapdoor sprung, dropping the bed into the cellar where John Fisher was waiting with an axe. People's escaped and hurried back to Charleston to tell the authorities. John and Lavinia were arrested and their property searched. The human remains were found, including many bodies in a lime pit in the cellar under the trap door. The Fishers were convicted of murder and sentenced to hang. The unrepentant Lavinia Fisher went to the gallows in 1820 wearing her wedding dress. John Fisher pinned all the blame on his wife, but he was hanged along with her. Lavinia's ghost now haunts the old jail on Magazine Street in Charleston as well as the Unitarian Cemetery. The truth. At Murder by Gaslight, we love a good legend, but we love the truth even more. Lavinia Fisher was hanged in 1820, but the crime was highway robbery, a capital offense at the time, not murder. She was a member of a large gang of highwaymen who operated out of two houses in the backcountry outside of Charleston, the Five Mile House and the Six Mile House. It is not clear whether or not the Six Mile House was a hotel, but it did serve as a hideout for a number of outlaws. Wagon trade in and out of Charleston was a profitable business and an important part of the city's economy. In 1819, trade was disrupted by a gang of highwaymen stopping wagons on the road and stealing goods and money. Since the victims were unable to identify their assailants, the authorities were powerless to act. A group of Charleston citizens decided to take matters into their own hands and, if necessary, invoke lynch law, according to the Charleston News and Courier. A gang of desperados has for some time occupied certain houses in the vicinity of Ashley Ferry, practicing every deception upon the unwary and frequently committing robberies upon defenseless travelers. As they could not be identified and thereby brought to punishment, it was determined by a number of citizens to break them up, and they accordingly proceeded, in a cavalcade, on Thursday afternoon, to the spot, having previously obtained permission of the owners of some small houses to which these desperados resorted to proceed against the premises in such a manner as circumstances might require. The cavalcade proceeded first to the Five Mile House, where they gave the occupants 15 minutes to vacate the premises before they burned it to the ground. At the Six Mile House, they evicted the occupants and left a man named Dave Ross behind to guard it. Believing their work was finished, the cavalcade returned to Charleston. The next morning, 
two men from the outlaw gang broke into the house and assaulted Dave Ross, driving him outside where he was surrounded by a gang of nine or ten men and one woman, the beautiful Lavinia Fisher. Ross looked to Lavinia for help, but she choked him and shoved his head through a window. Two hours later, John Peoples was heading out of Charleston in his wagon and stopped near the Six Mile House to water his horse. He was accosted by the gang, including Lavinia Fisher. They stole about $40 from him. Peoples returned to Charleston, and this time he was able to tell the authorities the identities of his attackers. He did not know all of their names, but he had just cause to believe that among them was William Hayward, John Fisher, and his wife, Lavinia Fisher, Joseph Roberts, and John Andrews. This, along with Dave Ross's story, forced the authorities to act. Sheriff's Deputy Colonel Nathaniel Green Cleary got a bench warrant from Judge Charles Jones Colcock and set out for Six Mile House. John and Lavinia Fisher, along with several members of the gang, gave up without a fight and were taken to jail in Charleston. Over the next several days, many other gang members were arrested. John Peoples identified them as the group who had robbed him. John and Lavinia Fisher were charged with highway robbery, a hanging offense at the time. While they were awaiting trial, a grave containing the remains of two human bodies was found about 200 yards from Six Mile House. They were believed to be the bodies of a white man and a black woman, dead for at least two years. With so many people in and out of Six Mile House during that time, it was impossible to identify their killers and no one was ever charged with their murder. Only two bodies, no more, were found at Six Mile House. Trial, May 1819. The Fishers pleaded not guilty to the charge of highway robbery, but the jury thought otherwise. Verdict, guilty of highway robbery. Aftermath. John and Lavinia planned to appeal their conviction to the Constitutional Court, and while they awaited the hearing, they were kept in the Charleston jail. Because they were a married couple, John and Lavinia were kept in the debtor's quarters in the upper part of the jail, rather than the heavily guarded lower floor. On September 13th, they attempted to escape through a hole they made under the window of the cell. John went first, down a rope made of blankets, but it broke before he reached the ground. He could have escaped alone, but chose to stay behind with Lavinia. Their motion for a retrial was rejected by the Constitutional Court, and the Fishers could do nothing now but wait for execution. The Reverend Richard Furman would visit them often to help them make peace with their maker. He appeared to make some headway with John, but Lavinia was more likely to curse than pray. On February 4, 1820, they were taken to a gallows erected on Meeting Street, just outside the city limits of Charleston. Each was wearing a loose-fitting white robe over their clothes, possibly the source of the wedding dress myth. It was a public execution, and everyone, including the fine ladies of Charleston, came out to see Lavinia Fisher hang. John mounted the gallows peacefully, but Lavinia had to be physically dragged to the platform, where she beseeched the crowd to help her. According to one historian, she stamped in rage and swore with all the vehemence of her amazing vocabulary, calling down damnation on a governor who would let a woman swing. The crowd stood shocked into silence while she cut short one curse with another and ended with a volley of shrieks. 
When Lavinia was quiet, Reverend Furman read a letter from John Fisher in which he thanked the Reverend for explaining the mysteries of our holy religion. John then told the crowd he was innocent and blamed Colonel Cleary for coaching the witness who accused him. The legend of Lavinia Fisher had probably already started, but her true last words to the crowd at her hanging guaranteed her immortality. If you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Written stories of Lavinia Fisher are usually accompanied by a painting, at the top of this post, alleged to be a portrait of Lavinia. It begs the question, when did she pose for it? During her life as a highwayman in the squalor of Six Mile House, or in the years she spent in Charleston Jail? The Fishers were buried in a potter's field, not the Unitarian cemetery Lavinia supposedly haunts. Lavinia Fisher is included in Murder by Gaslight because of her legend as a murderess. In fact, it is unlikely that she ever murdered anyone. Following is a list of six of the world's most spine-tingling, scream-inducing woods. From the website What Lies Beyond, a post by Graveyard Bride. Strange and Haunted Woods. Old House Woods, Virginia. Let's start this list with something almost every haunted forest requires, a violent history. Old House Woods, near Diggs in Matthews County, Virginia, was home to many a ghastly battle during the Revolutionary War and war between the states. As a result, people have reported seeing the ghosts of soldiers among the trees. There have also been reports of a screaming woman, headless dogs that attack carriages or cars, headless pirates searching for their lost treasure, and a spectral ship that foretells the coming of a ferocious storm. There are also tales that a vortex exists somewhere within the woods, and those who wander into it are never seen again. At one time, there was an old 19th century dwelling at the center of the woods, but it was destroyed by fire in the early 20th century. Adults warn local children not to venture into the woods, lest they never return. Apparently, these woods are privately owned, and the owner will call the police on trespassers if he sees one. Could he be protecting folk from an even darker force hidden in the forest? Screaming Woods, England In Kent, outside Pluckley, known as the most haunted village in England, are Daring Woods, also known as Screaming Woods. People have reported blood-curdling, banshee-like wails emanating from the forest, which, according to a legend, can be traced to the 18th century when Robert Dubois a highwayman was captured and taken into the woods where he was killed with a sword. People say the vengeful spirit of Du Bois still haunts the location where he died and warn if you're in screaming woods and hear phantom footsteps, it's Du Bois in search of someone on which to exact his revenge. Ballybally Forest, Northern Ireland because of the circular trenches and distinctive stone arrangements, Ballybally Forest is considered a site once inhabited by the ancients. From around 1400 to 1700, this forest became notorious for the disappearances of several people, and the freakiness of the place has become more pronounced with time. Very few people are willing to enter these woods, 
but those who have explored them have reported seeing billows of black smoke and hearing screams in the distance. In one particularly terrifying incident, two men thought they heard a lady crying in pain. Leaving the path in an attempt to find her, they discovered a tree dripping with blood. As they fled, one man looked back and saw human-like figures in brown robes and hoods standing motionless and watching them. Stories like these have led people to believe Ballybolly is a gateway to the Celtic Otherworld. Freetown Fall River State Forest, Massachusetts The Bridgewater Triangle is an area known for paranormal activity, and the Freetown Fall River State Forest, located in Freetown and Fall River, Massachusetts, is where most of the activity takes place. Its haunted status dates to colonial times, when settlers purchased the land from the Wampanoag Indian tribe. There were a lot of burial mounds in the forest, and the Indians considered it sacred ground. As a consequence, some believe the land is cursed. In the 1970s, the woods became known for satanic activity and murder. One infamous case involved Carl Drew, a local pimp and self-styled Satanist, who kept his girls in line by forcing them to participate in his sick rituals. One particularly gruesome sacrifice occurred February 8, 1980, when Karen Marsden was tortured and slaughtered. Drew tore out the woman's hair and fingernails before decapitating her and kicking her head around like a ball. He concluded the ritual by raping the woman's headless corpse. Many claim dark forces haunt the forest. Visitors have reported hearing heavy breathing and screams, and some have felt themselves pushed and prodded by invisible hands. Devil's Tramping Ground, North Carolina In horror movies, pets and other animals are often the first to recognize an otherworldly presence, but people rarely heed their warnings. In real life, things aren't much different. Dogs are said to flee the forest clearing known as the Devil's Tramping Ground near Bennett, North Carolina, a burnt, lifeless circle of ground where vegetation refuses to grow. Local legend has it the circle of devastation was created by the devil, who once tramped around in a circle while contemplating how he could destroy humanity. People who visit the location say the first noticeable anomaly is the absence of birdsong, and it is said if an object is left in the barren circle at night, it will be gone the following morning. Soil samples taken from the circle reveal extremely high levels of salt, but no one has been able to explain why this particular spot contains such elevated levels. Hoya Bacu Forest, Romania In an area often referred to as the Bermuda Triangle of Transylvania, the Hoya Bacu Forest is infamous for unexplained activity. Locals have long avoided these woods, but the area became notorious in 1968 after a biologist named Alexandru Sift observed a UFO-like object hovering overhead. Supposedly, the weirdly curved trees were normal until they were warped by a supernatural presence. Those brave enough to enter the forest have reported rashes, nausea, vomiting, severe headaches, and intense, debilitating anxiety, along with a sensation of being watched. Some believe there is an interdimensional portal in Hoya Bachu, and those who enter it lose all concept of time.
sit in your houses of nights, you who sit in the theaters, you who are gay at dances and parties, all you who are enclosed by four walls, you have no conception of what goes on outside in the dark, in the lonesome places, and there are so many of them all over, in the country, in the small towns, in the cities. If you were out in the evenings and the night, you would know about them. You would pass them and wonder, perhaps, and if you were a small boy, you might be frightened. Frightened the way Johnny Newell and I were frightened. The way thousands of small boys from one end of the country to the other are being frightened when they have to go out alone at night, past lonesome places, dark and lightless, somber and haunted. From the magazine Famous Fantastic Mysteries, a short story by August Derleth. The Lonesome Place. I want you to understand that if it had not been for the lonesome place at the grain elevator, the place with the big old trees and the sheds up close to the sidewalk and the piles of lumber, if it had not been for that place, Johnny Newell and I would never have been guilty of murder. I say it even if there is nothing the law can do about it. They cannot touch us, but it is true. And I know, and Johnny knows, but we never talk about it. We never say anything. It is just something we keep here behind our eyes, deep in our thoughts, where it's a fact which is lost among thousands of others, but no less there, something we know beyond cavil. It goes back a long way, but as time goes, perhaps it's not long. We were young. We were little boys in a small town. Johnny lived three houses away and across the street from me, and both of us lived in the block west of the grain elevator. We were never afraid to go past the lonesome place together, but we were not often together. Sometimes one of us had to go that way alone, sometimes the other. I went that way most of the time. There was no other except to go far around because that was the straight way downtown, and I had to walk there when my father was too tired to go. In the evenings, it would happen like this. My mother would discover that she had no sugar or salt or bologna, and she would say, Steve, you go down to town and get it. Your father's too tired. I would say, I don't want to. And she would say, you go. I would say, I can in the morning before school. She would say, you go now. I don't want to hear another word out of you. Here's the money. And I would have to go. Going down was never quite so bad because most of the time there was still some afterglow in the west and a kind of pale light lay there, a luminousness like part of the day lingering there. And all around town you could hear the kids hollering in the last hour they had to play and you felt somehow not alone. You could go down into that dark place under the trees and you would never think of being lonesome. But when you came back, that was different. When you came back, the afterglow was gone. If the stars were out, you could never see them for the trees, and though the street lights were on, the old-fashioned lights arched over the crossroads. Not a ray of them penetrated the lonesome place near to the elevator. There it was, half a block long, black as black could be, dark as the deepest night, with shadows of the trees making it a solid place of darkness, with the faint glow of light where a street light pooled at the end of the street, Far away, it seemed, and that other glow behind, where the other corner light lay. And when you came that way, you walked slower and slower. Behind you lay the brightly lit stores, 
All along the way, there had been houses with lights in the windows and music playing and voices of people sitting to talk on their porches. But up there, ahead of you, was the lonesome place with no house nearby and up beyond it, the tall, dark grain elevator, gaunt and forbidding. The lonesome place of trees and sheds and lumber in which anything might be lurking, anything at all. The lonesome place where you were sure that something haunted the darkness waiting for the moment and the hour and the night when you came through to burst forth from its secret place and leap upon you, tearing you and rending you and doing unmentionable things before it had done for you. That was the lonesome place. By day it was oak and maple trees over a hundred years old, low enough so that you could almost touch the big spreading limbs. It was sheds and lumber piles which were seldom disturbed. It was a sidewalk and long grass, never mowed or kept down until late fall, when somebody burned it off. It was a shady place in the hot summer days where some cool airways lingered. You were never afraid of it by day, but by night it was a different place. For then it was lonesome, away from sight or sound, a place of darkness and strangeness. A place of terror for little boys haunted by a thousand fears. And every night coming home from town, it happened like this. I would walk slower and slower, the closer I got to the lonesome place. I would think of every way around it. I would keep hoping somebody would come along so that I could walk with him. Mr. Newell, maybe, or old Mrs. Potter, who lived farther up the street or Reverend Beisler, who lived at the end of the block beyond the great elevator. But nobody ever came. At this hour, it was too soon after supper for them to go out, or already out, too soon for them to return. So I walked slower and slower until I got to the edge of the lonesome place, and then I ran as fast as I could, sometimes with my eyes closed. Oh, I knew what was there all right. I knew there was something in that dark, lonesome place. Perhaps it was the boogeyman. Sometimes my mother spoke of him, of how he waited in dark places for bad boys and girls. Perhaps it was an ogre. I knew about ogres in the books of fairy tales. Perhaps it was something else, something worse. I ran. I ran hard. Every blade of grass, every leaf, every twig that touched me was its hand reaching for me. The sound of my footsteps slapping the sidewalk were its steps pursuing. The hard breath, which was my own, became its breathing, in its frantic struggle to reach me, to rend and tear me, to imbue my soul with terror. I would burst out of that place like a flurry of wind, fly past the gaunt elevator, and not pause until I was safe in the yellow glow of the familiar streetlight. And then, in a few steps, I was home. And mother would say, for the Lord's sake, have you been running on a hot night like this? I would say, I hurried. You didn't have to hurry that much. I don't need it till breakfast time. And I would say, I could have got it in the morning. I could have run down before breakfast. Next time, that's what I'm going to do. Nobody would pay any attention. Some nights, Johnny had to go downtown too. Things then weren't the way they are today, when every woman makes a ritual of afternoon shopping and seldom forgets anything. In those days, they didn't go downtown so often, and when they did, they had such lists they usually forgot something. 
and after Johnny and I had been through the lonesome place on the same night, we compared notes the next day. Did you see anything? He would ask. No, but I heard it, I would say. I felt it, he would whisper tensely. It's got big, flat, clawed feet. You know what has got the ugliest feet around? Sure, some of those stinking yellow soft-shell turtles. It's got feet like that. Oh, ugly and soft and sharp claws. I saw one out of the corner of my eye, he would say. Did you see its face, I would ask? Ain't got no face. Cross my heart and hope to die, there ain't no face. That's worse than if there was one. Oh, it was a horrible beast. Not an animal, not a man that lurked in the lonesome place and came forth predatorily at night, waiting there for us to pass. It grew like this out of our mutual experiences. We discovered that it had scales and had a great long tail like a dragon. It breathed from somewhere, hot as fire, but it had no face and no mouth in it, just a horrible opening in its throat. It was as big as an elephant, but it did not look like anything so friendly. It belonged there in the lonesome place. It would never go away. That was its home. And it had to wait for its food to come to it, the unwary boys and girls who had to pass through the lonesome place at night. How I tried to keep from going near the lonesome place after dark. Why can't Matey go, I would ask. Matey's too little, Mother would answer. I'm not so big. Oh, shush, you're a big boy now. You're going to be seven years old. Just think of it. I don't think seven is old, I would say. I didn't either. Seven wasn't nearly old enough to stand up against what was in the lonesome place. Your Sears Roebuck pants are long ones, she would say. I don't care about any old Sears Roebuck pants. I don't want to go. I want you to go. You never get up early enough in the morning. But I will. I promise I will. I promise, Ma, I would cry out. Tomorrow morning it'll be a different story. No, you go. That was the way it went every time. I had to go. And Mady was the only one who guessed. Frady Cat, she would whisper. Even she never really knew. She never had to go through the lonesome place after dark. They kept her at home. She never knew how something could lie up in those old trees, lie right along those old limbs and sidewalk and drop down without a sound, clawing and tearing, something without a face, the ugly clawed feet like a soft-shelled turtle's, with scales and a tail like a dragon, something as big as a house, all black like the darkness in that place. But Johnny and I knew. It almost got me last night, he would say his voice low, looking anxiously out of the woodshed where we sat as if it might hear us. Gee, I'm glad it didn't, I would say. What was it like? Big and black. Awful black. I looked around when I was running, and all of a sudden there wasn't any light way back at the other end. Then I knew it was coming. Then I ran like everything to get out of there. It was almost on me when I got away. Look there. And he would show me a rip in his shirt where a claw had come down. And you, he would ask excitedly, big-eyed, what about you? It was back behind the lumber piles when I came through, I said. I could just feel it waiting. I was running, but it got right up. You look, there's a pile of lumber tipped over there. And we would walk down into the lonesome place in midday and look. Sure enough, there'd be a pile of lumber tipped over. And we would look to where something had been lying down, the grass all pressed down. 
Sometimes we would find a handkerchief and wonder if it had caught somebody. Then we would go home and wait to hear if anyone was missing, speculating apprehensively all the way home whether it had got Mady or Christine or Helen or any one of the girls in our class or Sunday school, or whether maybe it had got Miss Doyle, the young primary grades teacher who had to walk that way sometimes after supper. But no one was ever reported missing, and the mystery grew. Maybe it had got some stranger who happened to be passing by and didn't know about the thing that lived there in the lonesome place. We were sure it had got somebody. Some night, I won't come back. You'll see, I would say. Oh, don't be silly, my mother would say. What do grown-up people know about the things boys are afraid of? Oh, hickory switches and such like, they know that. But what about what goes on in their minds when they have to come home alone at night through the lonesome places? What do they know about lonesome places where no light from the street corner ever comes? What do they know about a place and time when a boy is very small and very alone, and the night is as big as the town, and the darkness is the whole world? When grown-ups are big, old people who cannot understand anything, no matter how plain, a boy looks up and out, but he can't look very far when the trees bend down over and press close, when the sheds rear up along one side and the trees on the other, when darkness lies like a cloud along the sidewalk and the arc lights are far, far away. No wonder, then, that things grow in the darkness of lonesome places the way it grew in that dark place near the grain elevator. No wonder a boy runs like the wind until his heartbeats sound like a drum and push up to suffocate him. You're white as a sheet, mother would say sometimes. You've been running again. You don't have to run, my father would say. Take it easy. I ran, I would say. I wanted the worst way to say I had to run and to tell him why I had to. But I knew they wouldn't believe me any more than Johnny's parents believed him when he told them as he did once. He got a licking with a strap and had to go to bed. I never got licked. I never told him. But now it must be told. Now it must be set down. For a long time, we forgot about the lonesome place. We grew older and we grew bigger. We went on through school into high school and somehow we forgot about the thing in the lonesome place. That place never changed. The trees grew older. Sometimes the lumber piles were bigger or smaller. Once the sheds were painted, red like blood. Seeing them that way the first time I remembered. And then I forgot again. We took to playing baseball and basketball and football. We began to swim in the river and to date the girls. We never talked about the thing in the lonesome place anymore. And when we went through there at night, it was like something forgotten that lurked back in a corner of the mind. We thought of something we ought to remember, but never could quite remember. That was the way it seemed, like a memory locked away, far away in childhood. We never ran through that place, and sometimes it was even a good place to walk through with a girl, because she always snuggled up close and said how spooky it was there under the overhanging trees. But even then, we never lingered there. Not exactly lingered. We didn't run through there, but we walked without faltering or loitering, no matter how pretty a girl she was. The years went past and we never thought about the lonesome place again. We never thought how there would be other little boys going through it at night, running with fast-beating hearts, breathless with terror, 
anxious for the safety of the arc light beyond the margin of the shadow which confined the dweller in that place, the light-fearing creature that haunted the dark like so many terrors dwelling in similar lonesome places in the cities and small towns and countrysides all over the world, waiting to frighten little boys and girls, waiting to invade them with horror and unshakable fear, waiting for something more. Three nights ago, little Bobby Jeffers was killed in the lonesome place. He was all mauled and torn and partly crushed, as if something big had fallen on him. Johnny, who was on the village board, went to look at the place, and after he had been there, he telephoned me to go, too, before other people walked there. I went down and saw the marks, too. It was just as the coroner said, only not an animal of some kind, as he put it. Something with a dragon tail, with scales, with great clawed feet, and I knew it had no face. I knew, too, that Johnny and I were guilty. We had murdered Bobby Jeffers because the thing that killed him was the thing Johnny and I created out of our childhood fears and left in that lonesome place to wait for some scared little boy at some minute in some hour during some dark night. A little boy who, like fat Bobby Jeffers, couldn't run as fast as Johnny and I could run. And the worst is not that there is nothing to do, but that the lonesome place is being changed. The village is cutting down some of the trees now, removing the sheds and putting up a street light in the middle of that place. It will not be dark and lonesome any longer, and the thing that lives there will have to go somewhere else, where people are unsuspecting to some other lonesome place in some other small town or city or countryside where it will wait as it did here for some frightened little boy or girl to come along, waiting in the dark and the lonesomeness. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed as always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.